Hello, it's Paul Wheelock, and welcome to the latest edition of the Bottom Line Podcast, which, if you're a first-time listener or viewer, is all about football finances and Liverpool football clubs in particular. More often than not on this podcast, it's hosted by the Liverpool Echoes business and football reporter, Dave Powell. But we've swapped his seats today. We've got him in the guest chair. And uh, later in the show, we'll be talking to him all about the Anfield Road stand development, an exclusive interview uh, he recently carried out for the Echo, and uh, news of a Premier League takeover. But mainly, we will be talking about uh, Mohamed Salah. If if you've been reading the Liverpool Echoes website this week, you'll know this already, but Dave's been very busy covering Salah's stories and, and in his contract situation in particular. It is a big story, isn't it, Dave, this one? a lot of, you know, We know how good he is as a player. He's probably playing as well as he ever has for Liverpool. There's a very strong argument to suggest that he's the best player in the world. So Liverpool fans want to know what's going on with his contract. And that's just it, isn't it? It's... Um, it... He is probably raised himself um, up to that level of, of being in the conversation for being, he is probably at the moment, arguably the best player in the world. Um, and Liverpool um, is where he plays his football and it's where the fans want to see him play his football for the foreseeable future. Um, but obviously, there's, it costs a lot of money to, to keep players um, like that tied into a football club and obviously his form at the moment coinciding with the fact that his contract his, his negotiations are such a hot topic um, just means that it's uh, the conversation's even more difficult I suppose and, and I suppose it's a case of Salah being able to um, hold a strong ground I suppose and, and, and be able to uh, leverage his position but ultimately I think that, I think there's an agreement that, that between everyone that, that Salah looks like he's a player that wants to stay at Liverpool. Um, for FSG and, and the ownership at Liverpool, it's a case of making sure the, the numbers are right and, and that they're agreeable to Salah uh, without um, risking um, future growth and investment into the playing side at Liverpool. Uh, obviously, that's a, a thorny issue at times, but I think, uh, and I had written about it previously this week, it kind of seems that negotiating with Salah and getting him on a longer term deal is the um is almost the cheapest option that is available to to FSG at the moment when you consider um he's already their player that he's already well paid player but they'd have to pay him some more money on top of that but uh, would it be cheaper to bring it who, who replaces a player like Mohamed Salah um Kylian Mbappe I mean he's, he's, he's not on Salah's level this year Haaland Again, uh, and the cost to bringing those players is, is astronomical. I mean, and um, I know Haaland's got a release clause next year, um, but imagine the clubs that are going to be vying for that kind of signature and the, the money that's going to be on the table. Um, for Liverpool, I mean, from my own personal point of view, it feels like this is the um, the best option for them, the cheapest, and um, in terms of making sure that they get the next two or three years out of the, the best player in the world at the moment, um, because you feel that if they don't, get a deal over the line um you wonder whether he will whether they'll allow him to sit out and just tick that contract away or whether they'll try and seek some uh, kind of fee in the market next summer so it's not just about um you know you can have to take out your mind that the fact that he could be 34 when this deal expires it's about making sure that they get the next uh, 18 months two years three years out of him um because you feel that if they don't, that, that his exit could be kind of expedited by um, by what's going on. This rests with John W. Henry and FSG. They hold purse strings at, at Anfield. And, you know, Henry and his fellow co-owners, vastly experienced sports club and, and franchise, franchise owners. 
and I was reading one of your stories this week to, to prep for this pod, Dave, and it's not the first time he and FSG have been in this position quite recently, actually, uh, but with their, one of their other sporting clubs, Boston, Rods, uh, Boston Red Sox, I should say, just before the pandemic hit, there was a, a comparable example. Is that fair enough to say? Yeah, I mean, obviously football and baseball is it's a very different sport, um, but ultimately the, the business uh, side of it and the numbers behind it, uh, the, there's a, you know, so many similarities. Um, balancing payroll is, is one of those. Um, in, in the 2020, um, the Red Sox traded their star player Mookie Betts to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, Betts, similar to, to Salah Betts, had time remaining on his contract. You only had a year remaining, whereas Salah has two. Um, but he... Uh, and, and also, he—it's uh, important to stress from the outset—he it kind of intimated that he would like to um, test himself elsewhere, um, but it wasn't off the table him staying at the Red Sox. Um, but what happened was that they offered him a deal. It was a good deal, um, but wasn't what he was seeking um, or what he could have got uh, elsewhere in, in California. Um, but what? They had to do was make the decision on whether they go even higher, um, and this is on the back of having breached the competitive tax threshold to the luxury tax, which they've, they've, they've mooted bringing in something similar in the Premier League and UEFA to uh, try and curb spending. Um, it, basically, it's where you uh, clubs that breach it um, do so uh, at their own financial risk. They pay a penalty on top of how far they breach it, and then they have to skirt back under that after a period of time. And after breaching it in 2018, they were kind of keen to get themselves back under that luxury tax threshold. So there was a, a John Henry comment in 2019 at the firing of um, uh, the Red Sox general manager, Dave Dombrowski, where he suggested that they needed to cut payroll and everyone looked immediately towards what happens with Mookie Betts because that seems like the most obvious way you you, you cut payroll. Um, and ultimately it transpired that Betts did leave for the Dodgers in um, early 2020. He was offered a new deal by the Red Sox, um, but opted to, to go elsewhere, um, because, largely because FSG felt they couldn't afford to lose him or, or let him wind down his contract and lose him for nothing uh, in free agency the following year. So they decided to um, try and get some cash considerations back and, and some kind of draft picks uh, in exchange for bets, which they did. Um, but competitively, it hurt them. I mean, um, in a COVID-affected season, uh, admittedly, where the season was reduced, they were um, to to use a word uh, from a Boston journalist I was speaking to on this subject last year. They were deplorable, um, and they finished I think they were third or fourth worst record in the MLB. Um, whereas Mookie Betts went on to win a World Series with the Dodgers. So it's um, yeah, it hurt them competitively this season. They've, they've managed to rally slightly. They're still in the playoffs um, against all expectation, really. Um, but yeah, there are there are similarities. I mean, you, you, FSG will be mindful. I mean, this was a big deal um, over in the states. I mean, John Henry doesn't speak to the the media with um, much kind of regularity. Uh, when he does, it's usually to address uh, something very serious. So the Red Sox fans were annoyed in 2019 because they didn't do a press conference to address the second of their general manager. So three weeks later, John Henry and the FSG. Uh, major players make an appearance in front of the media and they address that situation. Um, then in 2020, he comes out and speaks about bets. Obviously, we've seen it earlier this year with the fact that he um, 
made his piece to camera uh, on the European Super League. So it tells you it's only whenever there's an issue of real severity that um, causes real unrest amongst the fan base uh, that he will come out and speak. So that transpired and he, he kind of set out the reasons I mentioned before. Um, they felt they couldn't lose him for nothing. Uh, they made him an offer. Um, and, and it's kind of almost to placate the, the anger that there was in Boston at losing their best player, who they produced through their own farm system, so youth system. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a big issue in the States. It ran on for a while, uh, and it has its similarities over here because it was the fan base, which was desperate to keep Mookie Betts um, as part of the organisation. He was their star player. He was the one that they felt could was the one that were, would be able to catapult into another World Series, mm-hmm. whereas Liverpool fans feel the same about Mo Salah do. Are they as chipper about their chances of Premier League or Champions League success if Mo Salah departs? Um, probably not, because who who comes in that is better than Mo Salah without um, breaking the bank, which FSG um, notoriously don't do unless they um, have managed to underpin it through heavy sales like they did with Coutinho. So there are similarities. Um, the, but the, the main difference here, I think, is that Salah seems like he is more open to staying, is keen to stay, would probably like to get something done. And you you kind of feel that it's within, maybe the FSG might not want to pay um, what Salah wants, but I think they will know in them, themselves that they have the wiggle room to be able to facilitate it if needs must. Um, I, I see, I don't see any other uh, kind of, end game here other than, than Salah putting into paper on a, on a contract with Liverpool but, uh, but it's football, things can change but that's, um, I think they possibly would have learned from, from how they've been burnt with previous experience Fingers crossed that all happens Dave it's an interesting one, you said earlier that say they allow his, his contract to run down and then or they, they they sell him on it'd be hard to replace him it'd be hard to replace him just as a football player but like, completely right how much Harlem would cost in wages and agencies and things like that but there's no indication at all like you rightly said again that that Salah wants to leave and I think he did you know he's been doing a couple of social media posts lately I think he was one after the Palace game I think if I remember rightly where he was saying listen you fans do not understand the, the power that used to give to me so yeah everything looks like he he wants to stay I'm sure he does but even if it came to pass where he had to leave is, is it a strange situation top players like Mo Salah are in now? Because is there anyone who could afford him, you know, given the struggles that other major clubs are having at the moment? Uh, in, in the market right now, uh, you, you'd say no, Paris Saint-Germain and Man City are the only clubs that would really... You, you, so you say if you look to January, they're the only clubs that would really have the um, the muscle to be able to, to pull off something like that. Um, Paris Saint-Germain's wage bill... However many, however much creative accounting might might go on to facilitate um, having Mbappe, Messi, and Neymar in a front line, um, bringing in Mo Salah's wages as well without letting one of those go seems far fetched. And I also don't think he's he's, he's on Man City's radar. I think moving forward, I think um, they're probably looking for someone slightly younger. I don't know if it's their next major purchase. It seems like they're in the next phase of another <laughs> transition period there. Um, Real Madrid is the one, I think. Um, it's been suggested that Mbappe seems destined for Madrid next summer. Um, <clears throat> now, Madrid, <clears throat> I know the onset of the pandemic, there was much written about how they were in dire straits. Um, but ultimately, I think they almost they didn't obviously see the pandemic coming, but they knew that they were getting themselves into some financial difficulty because you only have to look after the Eden Hazard deal, which was 100 million. 
they spent virtually nothing in the transfer market since then and recruit some major money. Um, so they are in a position where they won't be breaching FFP rules by the time that next summer comes around. So you can see a scenario where they will make a bid for Mbappe. Um, is there going to be enough there with the La Liga salary cap, which they have to bring in Mbappe and Salah? I'd say no. Uh, and I think that Mbappe is probably the one that Madrid fans have their hearts set on. Barcelona are um, a real car crash still at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's going to take um, a long period. And I say long, you know, three or four years at least of forced austerity there. Um, they've gone from having Lionel Messi up front to, to Martin Braithwaite. So it's, um, there is, you know, you know and, and that's no disrespect, <laughs> but they've got a forward line which consists of, admittedly, they don't start every week, but they've got former Middlesbrough striker Martin Braithwaite and Newcastle flop Luke de Jong um, among them. And Everton flop Ronald Koeman as manager. <laughs> yes, and this is it. And it's um, all these things. There is no... I mean, the superstar they did have in mean, is Pedri. It seems like he even thinks, what have I got myself into here? This isn't the Barcelona that I was probably sold on when I came in. Um, Griezmann's gone. Uh, it seems like there's going to be a period there where... They are going to have to. I mean, and you look at the salary cap they've got, but it's below 100 million euros for this this season um, imposed by La Liga. Next season it'll be higher, but again, you're probably going to look at they're going to be having a wage bill in comparison with, say, Aston Villa next season. Um, are they signing Mo Salah? I don't see that at all. Uh, and where else is he going? Is he does he think uh, he's better suited to play in Germany with Bayern Munich? Is that a step up from the Premier League? I, the Premier League net right now and throughout the pandemic has become. Uh, it's only strengthens its position among the the um, the the world's kind of uh, eye view. It's it's so popular now. It, it mean, La Liga's um, has fallen away because of the the lack of power of Barcelona and Real Madrid, and I mean that's what the whole thing's predicated on. Um, Atletico Madrid do a great job, but it's it's Barcelona and Real Madrid which. Um, drive that success of La Liga. Um, and no other league comes close to the Premier League. It's the biggest league. It's the most lucrative league. Um, there is the chance here to play Champions football, Champions League football regularity still with Liverpool. So I, it's hard to imagine me thinking he goes to a, a competition of, of lesser quality. Um, and he doesn't strike me as someone who would do a, do the hammer to Rodriguez route of, of simply taking money somewhere. Um offers zero competitive um, kind of uh, impetus for him to go there. So you feel that, especially Liverpool, still driving hard to success. There's a real, um, I mean, it's still a massive achievement. You think about Liverpool under Klopp. I mean, they're playing under one of the greatest managers the English game has has seen in modern times. Um, There's still so much, I mean, it's not like it's a, it almost becomes boring that winning mentality, almost like with Guardiola at Barcelona. Yeah. It felt like he wanted to win something somewhere else. Um, there's still, you know, Liverpool are still in that process of wanting to reassert themselves at the very top um, for a period of, of dominance. And, and you feel like Salah has the chance here to, he's already assured himself a, a fine legacy at Liverpool, but you feel like another couple of years of adding a couple of trophies um, uh, and just making himself a real bona fide Liverpool legend. Um, and legends aren't easy, you know, the making of a legend isn't easy to come by at Liverpool. Um, so you kind of feel that, at, to go back to this very long-winded answer to, to your initial question, but um, I don't see the market being there, certainly not this year, but next year for someone to come in 
uh, and make a, an offer to Salah, which um, would A, be um, would tick the boxes financially and competitively for him, because you do feel he has that competitive drive as well, and that's ultimately what sets him apart from from some players who might be ticking over into 30 in the next couple of years. He he still has that drive to want to succeed, because ultimately he was, he was written off as a, as a flop at Chelsea. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. One and, season wonder at Liverpool. Yeah, you absolutely, know. And, and, and he arrived there... Um, I mean, he arrived with some doubters coming into Liverpool. I mean, there were, it was kind of, a, it was seen as, it was good, you know, a, a good time. The money paid, what was it, 37 million, something like that. Um, you look back now, what can you get for 37 million? Um, Alex Iwobi was 35 million. Uh, and that's not been, just, it's just the first example I can think of because I've, I've literally written a piece on Everton today and seen the value of it. Um, so it's one of those things. Um, 35 million buys you, uh, okay, Premier League player this, in this market. Um, it it doesn't buy you Mohamed Salah now, um, and and what he's brought to the football club is more than payback. Is his transfer fee, and you think about how little they spent on his fee in the first place. You kind of think maybe how much he's given, maybe he probably deserves um, to make back a little bit more of that through his wages. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. It's interesting what you were saying there. On one hand, Salah's got the power because, yeah, look what he's done over these uh, past four, four to now five seasons at, at Liverpool. But then on the other hand, even if he did want to leave, which there's no, I say, there's no indication he'd ever want to do that, they may not be that bad. It's not a buyer's market really at the moment. So that might be one of the reasons why there is a bit of an impasse or, you know, hopefully this impasse will break soon. But I think that's maybe one of the reasons that even though he's, Going into now his final two years of his contract on, on both sides, there's still a bit time for wriggle room kind of thing in terms of negotiations. Possibly. I think if this is a normal um, scenario and Real Madrid are active players in the market, I think the pressure is being put on to get this done. I think Real Madrid are already sniffing around. I think they're putting feelers out in the press. I think they're um, agitating. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it, in the media, I think that happens. That's... Real Madrid have long been since ever since for as long as I've been watching football, they've long been the um, the, the dominant force in the transfer market, along with Barcelona, the Galacticos. Everything comes back to this. They went for a period of moving away from the Galactico thing because um, it wasn't delivering the guaranteed success they were hoping for, um, and they they went to a more kind of uh, holistic approach of bringing through players. Um, but now you kind of feel that emerging from all of this and wanting to reassert their, their dominance again, you kind of feel they'll be looking for a marquee signing um, next summer. But if they were active in this current market, I think um, I think this process might have been expedited and I think we might have seen, um, seen it tied up in, in one way or another, either him staying or leaving by now. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. Uh, I think if Liverpool... Didn't think they were going to keep him, and he, he was going to, and they weren't getting the the inkling that he was going to sign a new deal. I think he, they may have put some feelers out this past summer um, with his value high um, or as high as it's going to be. Um, I think they have some confidence in inside the the club that they're going to get this this done eventually. Um, and as you, you alluded to there, there probably is they've afforded themselves a little bit more time to think over things, maybe structure a deal. Um, slightly differently um, that buys them that time that they may not have had if, if say, Real Madrid and Barcelona were in the market um, ready to spirit away these, you know, someone like Salah. Um, like Barcelona did with Coutinho, you know, they came in, offered what they, what, you know, 
sums that they would love to have now um, just to meet their own payroll obligations. But um, <laughs> it's it's one of those things. Liverpool have probably, from Liverpool's point of view, I think this has arrived. You know, all, all these things have arrived. It's kind of a perfect storm for them to get this Salah deal done. Um, <clears throat> hopefully, it'll happen fairly soon, so we can, um, you know, it, it can be put to bed, and then then the focus can be on <laughs> the investment that needs to be made next summer. So it's uh, it's never ending cycle of uh, <laughs> yeah in the football team, but uh, you feel that this is one that they really have to get right. Yeah, that investment might be for another podcast, but uh, for this one, it, it, there's no question is that it, once, if, and when this gets done, he will become the highest paid player in Liverpool's history and you know, footballers do get paid an obscene amount of money but he is one of the best players in Liverpool's history he's absolutely key to this team so I don't think anyone would begrudge him getting up to the level of a Kevin De Bruyne and David De Gea those kind of high level earners in the Premier League but there's no getting away from it it would break Liverpool's wage structure this and we'll come on to it in a minute Liverpool are very good wage in terms of salaries are very high, one of the highest in the world but this would take him beyond the Allison, beyond the Van Dyke one. That this this would be new ground for FSG almost. It would, and, and they have to be mindful of the fact that um, when I say being mindful, I mean they would be able to breach it. There's not this seventy percent. UEFA have a recommended limit on their wages, so it's seventy percent wages to ratio, uh, wages to revenue ratio. Um, it's not a hard cap. It's not a. Um, it's not something which is punishable. I mean, you only pun- you know it's you only punish if you're breaching FFP laws. So you're making losses, and Liverpool don't make. Lot. I know they made a loss in COVID, but there's the allowances made for that. Um, and historically, they are probably one of the clubs in Europe that are least likely to be affected by FFP. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that they don't have issues in managing their wage bill. Um, it, when you factor in what happened last summer, they've still not accounted in the accounts for Thiago's wages, Thiago Jota's wages. <clears throat> So when you factor in those next season, you're probably going to be looking at that gap between um, Liverpool and City has probably got closer. Um, United may well leapfrog that with the huge sums they've paid this summer in terms of um, bringing in Ronaldo and, and, and Jadon Sancho, etc. So, um, but Liverpool are probably going to bring that 70%, which will start creating, I suppose, a little bit of squeaky bum time at FSG. That they'll probably have to start thinking... We don't want to be going too far above this, but ultimately, once they do that, they're going to have to um, also add to the wage bill likely um, next summer by bringing in players to address some deficiencies in the squad. And I suppose they're going to have the problem they had this summer where you don't feel that there's the fringe players there now to move on who will make a significant difference to pulling that down because um, the beauty of Liverpool's success, I suppose, has been the fact that they've had so many contributors to it um, who are all paid well, you know, it's not a, um, there's no one person the whole thing's hinged upon um, who, who is king and, and, and demands all the money. But um, you, you feel like, I suppose, as a, as a claim to be made there, it is moving towards that being Salah, but they will be mindful that they can't overspend significantly on wages um, and, and start pushing to, towards 75, 80%, because then that starts to, um, that will start to impact what they do in the market um, next summer. So I think they're going to have to have one eye on what they do next summer and having some room to add to the wage bill as well as um, addressing the, the seller need and, and, and the need to have him as part of the, the football club. But you you wonder how much um, Salah's future played in the 
discussions over Van Dijk, uh, Fabinho, Allison. Ultimately, they want to be successful. And most players, when they're signing new deals, they want assurances of future success. Um, link, and that's obviously a lot of the time linked to making sure you keep hold of your, your best players and how it would look for FSG to willingly let their um, best player and probably the best player in the world right now leave for nothing because um, they didn't want to go too far with wages, um, probably wouldn't go down well in terms of harmony in the in the dressing room. I think the players would probably appreciate that Mo Salah is maybe a special case for um, paying that kind of money. Um, I think the 500,000 we heard bandied around, that seems... Yeah, they have not that back, haven't they? Yeah, yeah that seemed... Uh, and I think if, if that was the case, you would probably be right to say no, because you're paying double, almost in that case, some of your best earners there. Uh, and that would just blow a wage structure out of the water. Um, depends on how you structure this wage deal. I mean, it could be done through incentive, it could be heavily incentivized, which FSG do. Uh, maybe there's a, a, a major bonus for reaching 25 goals in a season. I don't know, Champions League bonuses, etc. etc. There's a million and one ways you can make a deal lucrative. It doesn't just have to be through how much you get paid per week. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that FSG be mindful of not. Um, blowing the wage structure out of the water, but also realising they need to make it bend um, to, to get this done. And to be fair to FSG, I know in the summer, on this podcast, on, on other Bloodhead podcasts, fans were talking about it all summer. Why aren't they spending money? And again, every credit to Jurgen Klopp, you know, compared to some of his rivals, he hasn't strengthened his squad that much, apart from the sign that Connor Tay, and it doesn't look like it's impacted things at all. But FSG, FSG do spend on wages, don't they? You know, I know you've, Doing stories recently, it's it's right there. Is it from like three hundred twenty-five million pounds now? The payroll second only to Manchester City. Yes, that's probably pushing on towards the three hundred fifty million mark. Once you account um, for new contract renewals and um, Thiago and Diogo Jota and players who've arrived over the past twelve months. Um, so yeah, you're probably pushing towards that now. Maybe um, three hundred forty-ish. So it's yeah, but in in baseball, they've also been historically high spenders i think they have the third highest wage bill in the mlb so it's it's one of those things where um there are you know they, they will they will point to that and look we invest in wages and um, they are an organization that weights contracts heavily in terms of success so contracts are heavily incentivized so you, you look at the the rise in that wage bill um through the past uh, a couple of years has been largely attributed to um, bonus payments made to players through winning the Premier League, the Champions League. Maybe that might decrease um, slightly, obviously, in the next accounts, um, the accounts after the next one, sorry, because we still haven't factored in the Premier League winning uh, bonus payments, which will be due out in the next account. So um, that wage bill might drop a bit sli slightly in 2023, 20, uh, maybe when that's published. But, um, <clears throat> but yeah, there's... They've historically they spend a lot of money on wages, um, less so on um, transfer spending, acquiring talent, um, at a high watermark. It's usually been like the likes of Conate. Um, it's players who they feel have got a ceiling for growth, like they did with Salah. Um, so that doesn't seem to be something which will change. Um, they'll continue to invest in wages, um, and this. Some we've seen so many new deals for Fabinho, Van Dijk, Allison, uh, Trent Alexander Arnold, Robertson. So they've nailed down the core of a successful side, and 
they just need the the kind of icing on the top now and, and get most of sorted and then you can start to think what comes next how do they add around the edges to to kind of see off the challenges of their rivals just one final one on Salah. I uh, just want to point our listeners and viewers to a piece you did uh, this week. Uh, it's on the Echo website now. Title, I think, is called Mohamed Salah. And the double replacement risk FSG will hope to avoid at Liverpool. It's a great piece, mate. You spoke to a couple of uh, fellow financial experts. And it, that's what you can't forget. Football is a business. This is a football business podcast. And, yeah, you lose Salah from the starting 11 Liverpool squad. So detrimental to the hopes of glory at home and abroad. But as this piece you've done this week, if he was to leave the club, it'd be massive, wouldn't it? Commercially, on a global scale, he, he brings a lot more than just his football, doesn't he? He does. And, and like or not, this is a consideration for players when they sign um, players now. Um, United, I mean, yes, Cristiano Ronaldo is a, still a fine player, but you're not telling me that um, he doesn't bring an enormous commercial benefit to them um, over the course of his deal there. Same for Salah, maybe not on the same level, but Salah is the most um, popular footballer in Africa, which is a, a market Liverpool would like to further strengthen their hand in. Um, <clears throat> he also is um, one of the most marketable athletes on the planet. Um, when you look at some of the endorsements he's brought in, um, I think he... Uh, something off the top of my head here, his endorsements, I think, out, almost outstrip his wages um, in terms of what he brings in off the field. Um, commercial partners like to have um, players that they can market in different territories. So um, commercial deals usually tie in with they play, they play a guaranteed sum to the, to the football club, whether that be to, to advertise on LED boards around the stadium, um, to have naming rights, sponsorship rights on, on uh, training kits or replica shirts. Um, but also, most of the time, it gives them access to players for corporate. Um, some of the times you don't see this. So um, Liverpool have got multiple partners across many different um, regions across the world. And um, while we've probably seen the, the Nivea tie-in down the years on our own TV screens, um Every year and, and, and every month, there is a Liverpool player appearing on um, a, a TV network for an advert somewhere, um, pushing a brand of, of, of a Liverpool partner. Uh, and while we may not see the value in that because we view it through the prism of being English football fans, mm-hmm. um, abroad, that is a very, very kind of powerful marketing tool. So if you're, um, uh, I think Vodafone at the time with um, Mohamed Salah, they have strong yeah. connections in Egypt there. So it's um, those type of things are really, really valuable to a commercial partner. So having someone like Mohamed Salah where they can present him in different markets means that they um, are willing to pay more to the club for um, to sponsor them because it gives them access to players like that. Um, if you are offering up a, a player who, you know, they just wouldn't get the same uh, kind of financial benefit offering up someone like Roberto Firmino in those markets because... Um, <clears throat> he isn't the biggest Brazilian star. Um, mm-hmm. they, they want the biggest star in each of these markets. So the biggest Brazilian star is um, Neymar still. So he's the most marketable Brazilian player that there is. Um, the most marketable French player is Kylian Mbappe. So that's who they want. Um, they don't want Clement Langley or someone like that. You know, they want they <laughs> they want they want the biggest player. Um, Clement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I, I, I'm not I'm not 
slighting anyone here. It's literally the first name that came to mind. Yeah, my brain. I don't know <laughs> why. It will be off your Christmas yeah, card. Really, really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it will be in long way, both off my Christmas card list. Um, maybe for being uh, for, for me and you too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's. I mean, possible difference with Takumi Minamino because Japanese um, commercially Minamino is a big deal in Japan. Um, still, uh, so I know he hasn't hit the heights at Liverpool, but someone like that. So there are these. Clubs don't find, uh, don't sign players based on what they can bring commercial. Really, there is usually the competitive element drives that forward. Certainly, more often than not in English football, it's different. Maybe if you are in an emerging market and you think that if you are, say, I don't know, maybe the example of Rodriguez Al Ryan. I mean, they're already a popular club, but you are signing Rodriguez to say, look, we have Hamas Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. Whether they or not they win the Qatari Championship, it may be an irrelevance. They want to show the world that you understand who this name is now because we've signed this player. Um, <clears throat> there's an element of that, but I think Liverpool, um, yeah, commercially brings in, he, help, he aids deals and certainly right, enables um, those behind the scenes commercially to, to raise the values of those deals because he's so marketable because he is the biggest player in Africa and Africa's you know vast continent of many countries. Um, and he's also, um, it, it's, it's quite a powerful um, tool to have someone so prominent in the Muslim community as well. Um, so that is, again, uh, I think we've seen reports um, is it last year, I think, since Mas- uh, Salah uh, signed for the club, kind of hate crimes were down, all this. And that's, that's a powerful, powerful tool to have a player that has that kind of impact, not only on the pitch, but commercially, but also in society as well. I mean, to have such a societal impact like that, um, that's where the the good players and the great players are kind of separated. I mean, he has um, the impact. And he's, he seems quite unassuming as well. And for someone like that, um, he, he has got a, a clean image, um, which commercial partners love. So, so he is a big draw for, for people who want to kind of pour their money in and have their brand seen uh, in association with Liverpool. So uh, while it won't be a key uh, kind of consideration in, in contract negotiations, ultimately that'll be, A, how much are you being paid and what can you do competitively with the football club? They will also be mindful of the fact that um, if he goes, they will probably stand to lose a few million pounds. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. It's all a virtuous circle, isn't it? have good players on the pitch, a winning team on the pitch, it helps off the pitch, it helps the club make more money, which certainly under FSG's case, they then put them back into the team. You know, that's that's their business model here. And probably to move on from Mohamed Salah now, you know, something that I'm sure FSG and the club uh, in the years to come are going to hope drive up kind of commercial revenue, certainly match day revenue is the Anfield Road stand, uh, which is now, the redevelopment of which is now got under the way. I don't know if you've seen the video of Klopp with the hard hat on and... <laughs> Shoveling some mud. It's yeah. on the Blood Red YouTube channel. It's brilliant. And it's hard not to like him, isn't it? Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's absolutely great. Great person to in those kind of situations. And he's, he does a great speech. If you want to check it out, it's on the Blood Red channel. Uh, but yeah, a couple of things. It's underway. It, it, it's going to increase revenue once it actually comes to fruition in a few years' time. But I know there were also reports recently that it might be costing a little bit more than first expected. What's what's the latest with the uh, the redevelopment? Yeah, I mean, that was a, a report that, that first serviced in, in The Athletic that they um, suggested that it might cost um, as much as 20 million more through uh, increased cost of the pandemic. I mean, there was things were paused, um, there had to be a redesign, uh, and also construction costs were 
expected to increase. Um, so it could be feasible that it could cost as much as 80 million. Um, but the flip side of that is um, they will be confident of making that money back in the long term and then some. I mean, the whole thing has been done basically to, to satisfy demand. I think there's around, is it 20,000 on the, on the waiting list yeah. um, for season tickets at Liverpool? Uh, they can sell Anfield out two or three times over without any issues. Um, so satisfying that demand, um, if, if, if it were FSG, I'm sure they'd love to have a 120,000-seater stadium um, that can just house these these fans uh, and, and it's almost like a licence to print money. But um, there is only so much you can do um, in the confines of Anfield. And they're maximising that, really. I mean, the main stand redevelopment um, has been key for them. It's helped drive up revenues consider- considerably um, through the extra 8,000 um, capacity and also the increased corporate hospitality. I mean, I've, I've only been um, seeing the corporate hospitality once and it was remarkable. You know, it was, um, it was, it's quite something. Um, um, I, I wasn't taking part in it. I'd purely seen it, but <laughs> from, people, from people I know who've, who've seen it, they, uh, they tell it's great. Um, but yeah, they, this is going to be uh, an extra, is it 7,000 seats, I think. Um, yeah. Anfield Road, and that will—that's—that's that's going to service a big chunk of um, demand there, and it's also going to raise revenues up. Um, at the moment, I think, in a taken out, ignore it's best to ignore the, the pandemic um, situation in terms of match day revenue, because obviously next year's match day revenue is going to be about two million pound um, yeah. because of the pandemic. So it's—it's it's almost it's a complete irrelevance to to kind of talk about that, and the the, the reasons behind that are well known. Um, but the 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 loss of home games at the end of um, the onset of the pandemic drove match day revenues down into the early 70 millions. Um, in a normal year, those match day revenues are upwards of 80 million. I think after this, um, with the additional demand serviced, um, some more commercial opportunities around it, I think you could be looking at Liverpool start to push on that 100 million mark for match day revenue, which again is, you know, we. Um, I think in football we we almost lose, lose sight of how big these numbers are sometimes because we look at transfer fees and how much players get paid uh, and you kind of think well what does 100 million buy you in a in the transfer market but it's it's not so much that it's a case of underpinning everything that allows a business to invest in those areas um, and if they can add another 10 15 million a year onto um, their match day revenues and that goes some way to helping them pay more wages uh, and invest more in the squad and ultimately the, the whole thing though is driven by competitive success so um, if Liverpool aren't successful on the pitch then um, everything else doesn't happen um, and, and that's the the tough spot FSG find themselves in because they're going to I mean you need to invest um in what goes on the pitch to be successful um, and it's going to come a point very soon where people ask the question are you really invested enough to make sure that happens Salah being an obvious one um, but then they also is the need to invest in infrastructure to allow everything else to, to function uh, and underpin that that kind of investment so it's a difficult one but I, I think the Anfield Road one is an important development for them also it allows them to um, host about five uh, non-football events a year on on the Anfield pitch, um, which is can be quite lucrative. Uh, I think through 
Tottenham. It was cancelled last year, but I think Tottenham last year were hoping to bring in um, over ten million from uh, the Anthony Joshua fight, which was obviously yeah. happened recently, um, and some music concerts. I think it was Guns N' Roses and, and Lady Gaga. So that's more than ten million coming in there just for stadium rental, plus the fact that you, you kind of you're keeping commercial receipts through, or, through sales of food and drink and and, and merchandise, etc. So. It, that, you know, all these things tie in just to make more, 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 more money. Um, and that's what FSG need to do if they're going to spend. And I think that's the, the model, isn't it? So unless they invest in these areas and more money comes into the football club, the spend doesn't happen. Um, and at the moment, you feel like they, they're going to need to bring in more money from somewhere because it's hard to see where the next big sale comes from to, to kind of underpin that heavy investment that's probably going to be needed next summer in the squad to, to bring in a couple of big players that, um that's going to require them to kick on um but yeah it's going to be a uh an important development for liverpool and one that for the long term will um we'll see them probably push push that 100 million uh match day revenue um fairly soon matt scannell uh, is liverpool's commercial director and you had an exclusive interview with him recently uh again i think there's a couple of stories that i've read on the echo website go check them out now but how did it go and, and kind of what subjects uh, did you cover? Uh, it was a chat really about um, maybe the unseen work that um, goes on behind the scenes commercially. Um, I was quite keen to find out how the club had been, uh, what kind of emerging from COVID, how strong the bounce back had been. And also to get the insights into how the first kind of 12 months of the Nike deal had gone. Um, it seemed it was a fairly rosy outlook, I think, in terms of, um, commercially, where the club are at, um, they were expecting strong. I mean, they had a, even even if after the onset of the pandemic and the most recent accounts, they had a, um, a rise in commercial revenue. And I think um, commercial revenue in the next set of accounts, despite everything else across the board probably being down, um, they will. The commercial revenue probably seems to be holding up. Um, you look at what they've managed to do during the pandemic. They managed to um, the Nike deal. <laughs> began um, during the pandemic obviously it was, it was sorted before that but it began in earnest um, during the pandemic and the first game they wore it was the final i know the first um uh, i think it was the first game of the new season i think they wore new balance to finish off the premier league yeah. season didn't they? um so there's a first knock into that and obviously the the, the big thing around that is it's a 30 million flat fee which is fairly low for a, a, a top six side um, but it's the 20% royalties um, which are kicked back as part of that, which is what Liverpool are really interested in. Apparently, sales have been very strong of of, um, of merchandise, um, aided by Nike have done a big push during the pandemic to accelerate their direct-to-consumer approach, so cutting out middlemen, trying to find a way around not having retail units open, obviously because they were all shuttered during, during the pandemic. Um, so that's really accelerated their business, and Nike has seen some major, major... Um, forward motion and profits in the past 12 months. Um, I mean, they're by far and away the biggest retail brand. It's it, This is completely, this here is completely like, uh, it's not, you're not born for free. This is just a t shirt I threw up this morning. Please don't read anything into that. Um, other um, other sporting apparel is available. Um, but uh, yeah, so they're, they're seeing a lot of forward motion with that. And I think they're managing, I think that uh, acceleration towards going straight to consumer is something which will uh, basically do doing more online uh, and kind of cutting out selling 
things through third parties on the web. I mean, people are coming direct to Nike now and, and, and kind of purchasing. Uh, and that's really aiding their sales in uh, territories across the world. And that's okay, big thing about Liverpool and Nike was to make sure they were able to reach all those corners of the globe and satisfy kind of demand and, and for, for the for the product. And that's what Nike have done, really. Um, they have more ways of reaching um, hard to reach uh, uh, kind of parts of the globe. So they've been able to drive forward that revenue. So that will probably see the first knock into that. I don't think it's going to be as strong as it will be, but it will probably we'll start to see um, some benefit of that. They had the Expedia deal, which was the shirt sleeve sponsorship, which was an uplift of 2 million from Western Union. Um, we've had the access sponsorship of uh, the new training ground. So all these things are factored in. Um, as well as a number of new partnerships which have been announced um, in, in various uh, official partners across the business. Um, so, yeah, they're expecting a, a rise in commercial activity. Um, and it's been, from what Matt Scammell said, it's been a good year uh, in that respect and something which is only going to um, get better, I think. I mean, brands, as I've mentioned before, with Salah, they like to be associated with um, winners. It's very easy to uh, sell your product and and leverage if you're able to leverage success uh, if you're premier league champions in 2020 and champions league winners in 2019 there's a good chance that companies want to be associated with you the um and that's another challenge of having to invest in the first team because you have to keep that level of success going to satisfy commercial partners so as you say the whole thing is just a never-ending cycle of keeping people happy um and and winning games of football so, but yeah, from 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 what Matt told me, the early signs of the night deal have been um, positive. Um, didn't go overboard and, and say how it wasn't glowing about how marvelous it's been. But he said they've broken. You know, there's been some fantastic sales, particularly on the away shirt. I think they've broken some records there, um, and they're also on target to break record shirt sale records, which from the previous season. So that gives you an indication of how well sales are going. And when you factor in, we've been through the worst healthcare crisis in a century um, and not even been able to um, pop to the shops without wearing a hazmat suit. Um, it's kind of, <laughs> it's, it's sort of weak, really. Um, so, it, yeah, it, we're, coming in, we're looking at this from a, a really kind of strange angle of these aren't normal times. But when normal times do resume, um, I would be quite intrigued to see what... Um, how strong all this looks. I think the, the deal ultimately for Liverpool will be, be a lucrative one. Um, be some signs of that in the next accounts, but I think um, commercially the club is at the moment uh, certainly heading in the right direction. Just a final one. I imagine that kind of night strategy of selling their products and Liverpool kits direct to the customer won't go down with, uh, well, particularly with someone like Mike Ashley. I'm sure he wants a sports director <laughs> off the best night gear in his stores. But then probably as we're speaking today, Mike Ashley's going to come into a lot more money uh, because it, it sounds like, Dave, I know you've written about it uh, from an Everton and Liverpool perspective uh, today on the, the Echoes website. Newcastle United, who were owned obviously by Mike Ashley, look set to be taken over by the Saudi Arabia-backed public investment funds. What's your initial thoughts on this story? Because there is no doubt about it. It is a big story, isn't it? It's a, it's a huge takeover. Uh, yeah, Mike Ashley is going to be able to. Um, he's going to be stupid with uh, massive sports direct mugs and slashing socks. <laughs> um, yeah, um, but yeah, it's it, it's a strange one, isn't it? Um, it, as I mean, you look at Newcastle fans; they've been through they've been through the mill really um, with ownership and and just kind of a real lack of ambition um, from from Mike Ashley. So 
you understand why they are um, excited about the possibility of um, having new ownership that might actually provide some money for them to um, be a challenge in the Premier League. But obviously, it comes with it the moral questions about um, human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia. Um, these aren't things we can skirt over and just ignore. I mean, just because it's football. Um, but the Premier League say they're satisfied that it's PIF and not the, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia that are going to be owners of um, the majority owners of the football club. Um, uh, obviously, Amanda Staveley and the Ruben brothers are going to be involved in the background. It, it's there are, for me to kind of provide any kind of answers on 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 this is is very difficult. But it, there are, there are lots of questions to be asked and answered, aren't there, um, about how all this goes down. Um, the obvious ones, as I mentioned there, the, the, the moral issue here. Um, how do, how does how does that play? How do, how does that um, wash with the you know the Premier League and, and its its world view? Um, from a competitive angle, purely taking away all that aside, uh, there is I've seen a few things. Uh, you know, social media posts kind of. I think Talksport did one in ten years where will Newcastle United be? And I, I, probably like Aston Villa, if I'm being honest, um, because. Financial fair play has, um, while it was done with the best intentions to stop teams overspending and uh, buying their way to success and risking financial ruin, it, what it has done is pulled up the ladder on those yeah. who seek to bridge that gap. Everton being a classic example, Everton yeah. spent 1.6 million this summer under Rafa Benitez because of the financial fair play or the uh, profit and sustainability rules at the Premier League there in risk of breaching, not FFP. Um, which means that they've had to the the approach of spend 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 to try and bridge that gap under Mishiri has, has had to slow down and there's had to be an element of realism. Hence the reason why they've probably gone for Benitez because they think he was the best man to kind of deliver that kind of you know or at least maintain that where they were uh, without losing ground during a difficult time of kind of some austerity. So that's going to be no different to to Newcastle. I mean, Everton have made heavy losses the past three years. So at the moment, they're playing catch-up, but they've got to play the game. Um, they'll want to be competitive and spend money by the time they move to Bramley Moor Dock in 2024. Um, problem with Newcastle is that fans now think, oh, here we go, we can push on, challenge. Reality is you probably can't, uh, unless you do a, a miracle of Leicester, which wasn't... That's, Leicester's success wasn't underpinned by um, fantastic money available. It was underpinned by some real golden recruitment which just yeah. happened to pay off and Golo Kante, Riyad Mahrez, um, Jamie Vardy hitting elite form when no one expected him to. All those it was all these things came together at the the, the perfect time to make all that happen. Um simply investing money in um the squad without with just the, the goal of, of winning doesn't um always succeed uh, certainly doesn't succeed in the Premier League now because the teams that have been able to rely on that. So you look at, I made the example of um, Sheikh Mansour takes over at Manchester City in 2008. Um, they invest heavily in those first three years there. And by the time the year financial fair play comes into force, they've just made the Europa League. That season, they win the Premier League for the first time. They've booked Champions League football that year. Now, since then, they've never been out of the Champions League. That's a guaranteed £50 million per year coming into the football club. Um, everything else rises from that. So commercial revenues rise. rise. 
you've got that 50 million pounds booked in there plus you don't have to worry that 50 million pounds is there you don't have to worry about the financial fair play issue in the background i know they've had their issues with it through bloating corporate sponsorship but obviously that's just their allegations and it got thrown out by the court of arbitration for sport premier league to investigate um but there is not that scope anymore so you can't just spend to try and catch up because you won't the gap isn't you you haven't got the ability the wriggle room to spend and bridge that gap so as long as those clubs are qualifying for the champions league they are being able to spend the money on the best players they'll be able to pay the best wages so if you look at the um, disparity between what um say the squad values of i think we did one earlier this week so liverpool squad value for example it's about 750 million um after that i think if you're looking at uh, kind of where newcastle are at the moment the squad value is about 200 million you cannot bridge that gap in a yeah. short period of time that is something that is a cumulative effect uh, and one which is underpinned by being able to pull in mammoth resources from the champions league and commercial partners who pay those big fees because you are in the champions league um you you look at newcastle you kind of think that they just want to be competitive so maybe the success for newcastle fans is um winning an fa cup um which is absolutely that's that's well within the remit and qualifying through Europe through that. Um, it's not to say that success isn't achievable in the future, but the idea that they can just throw some money at it soon and then be challenging um, is a fallacy um, because the cards are stacked against them. Um, and I don't think Liverpool will be unduly worried about uh, new money on the scene, just as they probably weren't unduly worried about Everton being new money when that happened. Um, I think there's the realisation that these teams have to do so much to catch up and the the, the, the amount of wriggle room that the likes of the top four, five, six teams in the Premier League have with regards to FFP is massive compared to the rest of them because everything else outstrips what, what these other clubs do, so commercial revenue, etc. And Newcastle, as Man City and PSG have found out, they can't just, there are guardrails in place around bloating corporate sponsorships to try and bring in some more money to the club. So it's, it's not going to be a quick fix, um, but maybe if, you know if they invest in the infrastructure and they get their recruitment right and they get the right manager right, maybe they can be competitive. But if it's just about throwing money at uh, the issue and thinking they're going to spend, 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 then um, that ship has, has already sailed. Time will tell. Dave, thanks very much, mate, as always, uh, for either guesting or hosting on your podcast. It's been a really interesting listening to you, mate, and we will be back soon. Thanks, Paul.